Hi, it's Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. One of the best ways that you can do this is by reading my newest book, Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. Before you get started with today's message, I wanted to let you know that it's now available wherever you buy your books, whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I wrote Poverty, Riches, and Wealth to help you move from the never-enough mentality into a true kingdom abundance from the inside out. Check it out, and I hope you enjoy this message. Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you're doing here, and we, we bless you bless this day, and we bless this as a day that you made. You bless this as a day of both destiny and a day of prosperity. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, uh, most of the time, uh, the, the team always likes, Bill and I and Eric and team, to have a title for our message. We always have to make one up. I'm always like, it's the kingdom. They're like, that was last week's message. Like, the kingdom part three. And I have to always usually come up with some kind of a title for our message. And, but uh, I, I woke up about, this is probably a month ago, with about 10 or 12 kind of uh, phrases that became titles for messages and uh, so I, I got the title for this before I got the message. I, I want to... <laughs> one of the titles, which is not the message I'm going to preach today, but um, what to do when your girlfriend ties you up. <laughs> Lessons from the book of Samson. But anyway, but this... <laughs> I like that one. I got two or three I can't share from the podium any, either, but... <laughs> yeah, but, this, but this one... The title I got, The Me I Hardly Know, Why Most People Never Unearth the Greatness Within. So I want to talk to you a little bit about unearthing the greatness within. And first of all, you know, the first few minutes of this will just be repeat for everybody who's, who's been here for any length of time. But how many of you understand that you were born for greatness? Like, okay, see, let me try over here, see. You were born, we had a lot of guests over there. You were born for greatness. The lesson over here. I want to shame you into a new behavior. When we were actually born for greatness, I mean, we were born in the image and likeness of God. And so, you know, people uh, say things like, I don't want to steal the glory of God. How many know, first of all, he ain't that big? Can you imagine God up there going, Oh, I stole my glory. Lord, one person took your entire glory, just, just took it just like that. <laughs> People, you know, that's not being humble, that's just being stupid. Not only, can you are, not only are you not big enough to steal the glory of God, but the truth is, is that you can't steal what He gave you. In John 17, Jesus is praying for His disciples and all those who will come to know Him by their words. And He prays this part of the prayer I love. I love the whole prayer, but I love this part for this morning. And the glory, Father, you gave me, I want to give to them. That there may be one. How many know you can't steal the glory? He gave you the glory. I can't give my son a car and then call an hour later. Ah, uh, Jason Valentin stole my car. Like, I gave you the car. And not only that, but you understand that when you show up and are fully alive, you actually give glory to your father. Like, like you actually are extending the borders of the family line. I, I have eight grandkids. I love them all. Uh, some of my grandkids are athletes. We went to, we've been to several games. Recently, to one of my, my grandson lives on the coast, is, was on a, a winning football team. They took the state 
a championship and a, and a winning uh, basketball team. They took the state division. And we got the privilege of being at a couple of those games. You know, when my grandson made a shot, I didn't yell like, I'm better than him. He's pretty good, but I'm better. I didn't think, oh my goodness, if he keeps doing that, no one's going to like me. I didn't think, he's going to get all the attention. They, they won't want to be friends with me. No, I'm like, whose son is that? How I many know he just extended the Valentin name? He just did something, and when you do something amazing as a son, as a daughter, it doesn't demean your family lineage. You didn't like, I I hope my grandfather doesn't feel bad that I played better than him. Are you kidding me? I'm like, you actually are showing off the family lineage. You're actually extending the family greatness. I got to get out of this like poverty mentality. It's like, if he gets some, then I don't have any. It's like, you, what kingdom are you in? We're in the kingdom where there's, a, where there's more than enough. You're in the land of more than enough. You're in the land of not just more than enough money or more than enough food. You're in the land of more than enough glory. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It'll be deep and wide. Christ, you knew the hope of glory. Like you were actually born to be amazing. There's something, <laughs> there's something about you showing up. And listen, thinking less of yourself isn't humility. Just thinking of yourself less is humility. And by the way, if you're thinking bad about yourself, it's still all about you. You're still the center of attention. Poor me. I'm so, you're so self-centered. You've heard me say this before, but you know I think false humility is killing the church. There's something about you know when you were little, you knew you were born to be amazing. You know, talk to any child. You know, they want to be Superman, Spider-Man, the beautiful princess. You know, something amazing. They don't want to be the garbage man, the loser. I think I'll be a drug addict when I get older. You got to be have about 12 years of religion to convince you that being a loser is somehow spiritual. When Christians do something amazing, it's like we have to apologize for it. I'm really sorry I got a raise. I know I don't deserve it. Well, go back to your boss and give it back then. Or shut up. Uh, Being funny, I'm not talking about being arrogant, but I am talking about believing in who God made you to be. And the fact that you were actually made in the image and likeness of God. Actually... It was John who said that when we see Jesus, it's going to be like looking in a mirror. And, and Paul said in Ephesians 5.1, he said, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know when you're acting like God, you're being yourself? Okay. You know, I wasn't supposed to act like God. I'm supposed to be Christ-like. Hello. Jesus is God. If you're trying to be like Christ, you're trying to be like God. This is so deep, like, people are like, Chris isn't a theologian, he won't understand this deep stuff. You know, um, the other night, this has probably been, I don't know, almost a month ago, we were laying in bed, and Kathy um, found this video, and she likes to show me videos at night. (laughs) Usually there's something to do with, like, a horse jumping something, or a child, you know, doing something on a horse, and she's like, you gotta see this video, you know, and it's like 11.30 at night, you know, and it puts me to sleep, I will say that, it's... You know, a happy horse 
is a happy wife, and a happy wife is a happy life. So I watched the videos fully connected and present. Did you like it? That was amazing. But the other night, we get in bed, and she's like, it was 11.30 at night, and she's like, you got to see this video. And I'm like, okay. okay. Yeah, it, it's just a few minutes long. I'm like, okay. And we're in bed. We're laying in bed. The room's totally dark, and she flips the video on, and I'm like, where's the horse, you know? <laughs> does the horse talk? What does the horse do, you know? And flips on this video, and this amazing girl is singing. We played the video, I think, four times that night. I kept playing it over and over. This is amazing. I want to show you this video. If you're watching by Bethel TV, you won't be watching that video. (laughs) You can't legally stream it. But you can get on YouTube and stream Courtney Hedwin, America's Got Talent, while we watch the video. Watch the video. What did you think of that? (laughs) When you saw that, did you think, Oh, man, I'm like, I can't sing. I mean, when you see someone fully alive, when you see someone who steps over the chicken line, come on, when you see a, a young 13-year-old, like, what are you, what's your favorite subject? Music. What kind of music do you like? I can't even remember. I don't know. And then they, whew. When you watch that, does it reduce you or inspire you? Like when I watch that, I don't think like, oh, poor me, I wish I could sing. I think, what would happen if I became fully alive? What would happen if I became fully me? There's something, you know, when you become fully alive, it doesn't reduce the people around you. It inspires the people around you. And I'm saying, I believe that God wants all of us to be fully alive. There's something about bringing the, all of you to the world and being who God's created you to be and stop copying everybody else. You'd be just a cheap invitation of someone else or you can be an original. For years, you know, uh, years ago, the first time we had a school retreat, a school ministry retreat, we, they all had journals, all the students had journals, and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to write down what you would do with your life if you were 10 times bolder. We're going to take 10 minutes for that. And then we're going to talk about it. So we did. It was very quiet. I wrote down stuff. I got back up and the podium said, okay, if there's anything that you wrote down in your journal, faith, I'm sorry, fear has reduced you. How many understand that if there's one thing that you could write down that you were afraid to do, how many understand that fear has reduced you? Whew, that wasn't as inspiring as the story there. And I want to say that you are not going to figure out, like, what's the message? Why most people never unearth the greatness within, the me I hardly know. You are not going to get to know the me God created you to be in the comfort zone. You keep yourself from conflict, and you're going to be a reduced you. I want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 
I love Timothy for lots of reasons. But years and years ago, when we were in Weaverville, I studied the character of Timothy. And I really related to Timothy. Timothy dealt with fear seemingly his entire life. I mean, Paul writes in this chapter we're going to read in just a minute, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but love, power, and sound mind. That's one of the most repeated verses on fear. But Paul wrote to Timothy several times personally. Timothy was Paul's spiritual son. And Paul wrote to Timothy. One time he tells them, take a little wine for your constant ailment in your stomach. Another time he writes, I think, to the Corinthians or the Philippians, whom he had sent Timothy to. He says, I'm sending you my beloved Timothy. Don't do anything to make him afraid. Can you imagine Bill sending me to a conference saying, I'm sending you Chris, but please don't scare him. (laughs) And I really related to Timothy because I've had a lot of fear and anxiety in my life, and yet Timothy becomes one of the greatest apostles of the first century. He is the apostle over the church of Ephesus. He becomes a great man in a Greek city that would be equal to our San Francisco or Hollywood. He is the senior apostle over an entire city that's in the midst of one of the greatest revivals in history. He's dealing with his fear, and Paul is reminding him, you were born for greatness. I want to start with verse 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Sorry, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and then it was in your mother, Eunice. And I'm sure that it's also in you. For this reason, because you had a grandmother and a mother, did you get that? Like, his legacy is not coming from his father. His legacy is coming from his mother's, from his grandmother, from his mother. I'm mindful that it's in you. For this reason, he's about to tell him, kindle afresh the gift of God that was put in you, who was, that you received through the laying on my hands. But he says, for this reason, what reason? Because you're a third generation believer. How many understand that we go from faith to faith and glory to glory? We have this ever-increasing kingdom. He's like, your grandmother started this. Then it was in your mother. And the momentum is, is growing in you. You are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in this story, you're Jacob. You're the third-generation Christian. There's more required of you. For this reason, because your grandmother started this and your mother continued it, and now it's this great faith is in you. For this reason, he says to him, for, for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of hands. For God has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but love, power, and a sound mind. I love this verse. This, I read many years ago that this verse in, in the Greek can read this way, where it says, kindle afresh the gift of God. It can read, take the gift and put it in the fire. I love that because it makes sense of the next verse, for God has not given you a spirit of fear. Timothy, I'm reminded that you are a third generation Christian. You you are the third generation of a legacy of growing faith. And then I laid my hands on you and I gave you a gift. Take the gift I gave you and put it in the fire. For God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. Listen, you want to discover who God made you You won't discover it as a spectator. You have to get in the arena. 
I love the story of Saul, and I, I, Saul of the Old Testament. I, I'm sad for Saul because he didn't end well. There's a lot of men and women in the Bible who didn't end well in the Old Testament. It's kind of sad. Saul really started as a really good man. Saul, you may not know this, I didn't realize it till a few months ago, but Saul was actually the son of one of the most famous warriors in Israel's history. His father loses donkeys, and we've told this story many times, so I'll kind of do this, uh, just a recap on the story. His father loses donkeys, and he sends Saul out to find the donkeys with the servant. They can't find the donkeys, and the servant says to Saul, I think there's a prophet at the next village. Maybe he'll know where our donkeys are. So they journey to that village, and while they're journeying there, the Lord says to Samuel the prophet, who is the prophet of that city, there's a couple of guys coming. They're going to meet you tonight, and you're going to, they're looking for donkeys, and you're going to tell them the donkeys are found, and then you're going to anoint him king. They encounter Samuel unseemingly by chance, um, at his house. And they say to Samuel, we're looking for a prophet. Do you know where we might find a prophet? And he says, I'm the prophet you're looking for. And then he says to Saul, these profound, this profound statement. But your donkeys have been found. But tomorrow morning, I'm going to, I want you to stay. For, t- for I'm going to tell you everything that's in your heart. For aren't you the one that everyone in Israel has been waiting for? Saul is completely stunned. He says to Samuel the prophet, I'm from the smallest family in the smallest tribe. I have no idea why you're talking to me like this. And let me say this. He may have been from the smallest family in the smallest tribe, but his father is famous. <laughs> I'm saying sometimes, instead of being inspired by our parents, we wilt under the, the glory of a generation who followed God completely. <laughs> and he doesn't even know He's called to be king, even though Samuel says to him, tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell you everything that's already in your heart. Like the Wizard of Oz, I'm not going to give you anything you don't already have. The next morning, Samuel anoints Saul king. Pours oil on his head, anoints him king, and then sends him out to meet the prophets. I love this. The prophets who are going up to Bethel. (laughs) It's just so amazing that the prophets still are coming from Bethel. And he says, <laughs> anyway, I just think it's profound that they knew what would happen these days. I wrote it down 3,000 years before we're here. But anyway, and he said, you're going to meet the prophets and they're going to do this stuff and you're going to take this bread and this wine and stuff from them. And he gave him some things that he was to do. And then he says, when you encounter the prophets, you're going to be changed into another man. The Bible says that's exactly what happened. He encounters the prophets. He's changed into another man. Now, I'd like to propose to you that, Samuel, that, that Saul was not changed into a different man, but he was changed back into the man he was called to be in the first place, that low self-esteem, disappointment, disillusion had, had taken, had stolen his destiny. Well, what do you do when you're a king? There's never been a king before. Remember that Israel was only led through prophets. And Sam... I'm sorry, Saul becomes the first king. And by the way, Saul didn't ask for this job. He's very humble. As a matter of fact, when the people went to commission him, because this is his private private anointing, when they went to give him a public commissioning, he was hiding in the luggage. 
And the Bible says that Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone in Israel. This is not a little guy. This is a big guy. And when they go to anoint him king, he's hiding in the luggage. He didn't ask for this job. He wasn't like, hey, you guys should like vote for me. He was like, I actually don't want to do this. So Saul goes back to farming because he doesn't know what to do. You know, you could give Saul a little credit like there is no throne. There's no structure. There's no government. There's no, there's nothing. There's never been a king. He goes back to plowing, and this crazy story happens. Natosh, the Amorite, comes down into Israel, and the elders meet him at the border, and they say, please make peace with us, the elders say to the Amorite. And he said, no, no, I've come to kill you all. And they say, well, please make peace with us. And he says to them, I'll make peace with you if all the elders of Israel gouge out one eye. (laughs) This is a crazy story. And they go, okay, (laughs) give us a week to think about it. And here's what they actually say to the Amorite. They say, give us a week to think about it, and we're going to go see if anyone will defend us from you. And if they will, then we'll fight you. But if they won't, then we'll gouge out our eye and serve you. (laughs) And the Amorite guy goes, okay, take a week. (laughs) It's a crazy story. So they send out these these heralds, these, these messengers, you know, it's before internet, and they send out these guys on horseback, and they go from village to village, and they're looking for somebody who will defend them. And now we pick up the story in, cha- in verse 4. Then the messengers came to Gibeath of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? So they related to him the words of the men of Jebethos. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily, when he heard these words, and he became very angry. And he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them <laughs> throughout the territory. I love Old Testament stories. Hey, I'll just send you a message, you know. It isn't email, it's oxen. I'm going to send little pieces of oxen, and it's going to be in an envelope. And, like... and Saul says to him, this is what's going to happen to your oxen tomorrow if you don't show up. I'm going to take all your oxen, I'm going to cut them in pieces. And whoever does not come out, Saul, and after, after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to their oxen. So the men, so the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Here's my point. Saul has been destined to be their king. He's prophesied over that he's going to be their king. He's anointed to be their king. He's had an encounter with the prophets, and he's become another man. But what's he doing? He's in the field plowing. He just still has not fully realized his total destiny. He's fully, he's still not fully alive. And then what happens? A conflict happens. Suddenly, they're like, gouge out all your eyes and we'll make peace with you. Okay. And when Saul hears it, it says, and the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now he isn't just anointed for identity. Now he's anointed for purpose. He comes out and he becomes the man he's supposed to be. I'm trying to say, like, Being in the palace is fine, but how many know the palace is there to bring out your purpose, not just so you can soak up suds and be comfortable, but so that you can actually be fully alive. Many years ago, we were uh, youth pastors in Weaverville, and we took, and and every year we take our youth to, um, to the Bay Area, we go to Marriott's and take, our, take the kids to Santa Cruz Beach. Anybody know where Santa Cruz Beach is? So we take their kids to Santa Cruz Beach and Boardwalk, which is kind of like there's kind of a carnival 
uh, on, the, on, the, on the wharf, and then down below, of course, is the beach and the sand and all of that. And on the uh, beach, there's, uh, at Santa Cruz, it's very, very busy there in the summertime, and there's a stage made out of concrete on four pillars out in the middle of the sand so they can have concerts and all kinds of stuff there. And we had been with the kids for three days in my mother's house. That we stayed at my mom's house, which is 900 square feet with 37 kids. Yes, we are martyrs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so we, this was the last leg of our, of our journey. We, were, we go to Santa Cruz. We do this every year. We did it for eight or nine years. And so the last day, we'd take them to Santa Cruz, spend the day there, and then drive home to Weaverville. So we get there, and it's Muscle Beach Day at Santa Cruz Beach, which in plain English is a bodybuilding contest. <laughs> you know, you can imagine, I fit right in. Sometimes I take my shirt off in the bedroom, and I do this, and I tell my wife, I say, you feel safe? <laughs> Lately, it hasn't been affirmative. But anyway... Uh, so we get there, and we buy tickets for the kids, and they're all riding the rides. You can ride all day, on, you, know, on, you can get a day's pass. And so we were doing that with most of the kids, and, and then the, some of them wanted to you know, play on the beach. And, so, and the beach, uh, if you've ever been to Santa Cruz in July, especially with an event like a bodybuilding contest, you can hardly see the sand. There's so many towels and people on towels. And so I'm laying against one of the pillars underneath uh, the, uh, the, the stage just trying to get out of the sun, and, uh, and this one gal, um, we'll just call her Jane, she's a 13-year-old, she was in our house, we had a crisis home, our house wasn't in crisis, contrary to popular opinion on Facebook, but we had a home to take people who were in crisis into our home. And so we had some, lots of kids that came out, you know, out of crisis into our homes, and so this, this gal was in our home, she was 13, but she had the body of an 18-year-old, and she was, uh, she was out, she said, I don't want to ride the rides, I want to play on the beach, so she's playing on the beach, and and we're just kind of like, you know, watching all of our kids in the midst of this huge crowd and, and this loud bodybuilding contest is going on above my head. And so I look out and, and, and Jane is running along the water's edge. And, and this is probably maybe from here to the, where you drive in the road there. It's that, that maybe by the ball field. So it's a long ways off. And there's a man in full black leather, motorcycle leathers, following her. And they're, and they're both running. And he's yelling something. I can't hear what he's yelling. Obviously, so much noise. And she's yelling something back. And he's chasing her. And so I kind of get up on me, my knees. And I'm like, what's going on there, you know, with Jane? And, and so she, she, begins to, she starts running towards me. And they're running on top of people, laying on, you know, towels. And there's all this, you know, uh, you know commotion happening and interrupting people who are trying to relax and and so she runs, and have you ever, you know that anxiety when someone, something like this gets close and you start to like get so scared you can't move? So as they get closer, I can hear him saying, I love you, I love you, I'm taking you with me. And she's like, get away from me, no, I'm not going with you, I love you, I'm taking you with me. And, and she runs over and she falls down right on the ground right here on her knees, and he just ignores me. And he grabs, she has like kind of a halter top on, and he grabs her by the straps, and he lifts her up, and he goes, I love you, I love you, I'm taking you with me. She's like, get away from me, get away from me. And I, and I hear this voice in my mind tell him about me. <laughs> I'm like, this is not a good time for evangelism. <laughs> tell him about me, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm in a war, and I'm in a war, right? I'm in this war. Tell him about me. I'm like, Moses, I stuttered up really bad, you know? Tell him about me. And finally she says, while he's shaking her, this is my dad. And so I, I think I should do something. So 
I grabbed him by the hand. I said, that's enough. And he drops her and he grabs me. And he picks me up off the sand, which is not as great as feet as it is today. It's 40 pounds lighter. And he picks me up and he starts shaking me. And he's like, I love her. I love her. I'm taking her with me. And I'm thinking, you'll bring her back, you know. <laughs> and he's shaking me. I love her. I love her. I'm taking her with me. And, and I, this voice is getting more intense. Tell him about me. Tell him about me. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. And finally, he says, well, he's shaking me. And he keeps saying, he keeps repeating, I love her, I love her, I'm taking her with me. And then he, out of the blue, he goes, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm a pastor. When I get out the word pastor, he drops me. And he steps back about six feet, and he keeps saying, pastor, pastor. And the Lord's like, tell him about me. And I'm thinking, not going to happen. And over his head, I see an open vision. I never had an open vision before. I mean, with my eyes, like, like someone had hung a TV screen in the air, I see an open vision. And the first scene is him at the edge of a, in, in a funeral, at the edge of a, you know, a, a tomb. Uh, and, and, I, and I say to him, your father died last year, and you think it's your fault. He goes, yeah. And then the scene changed, and it's an old woman in a, in a hospital bed, and he's standing next to the woman. And I said, and your mother's in the hospital, and you think that's your fault. He goes, dude, you were freaking me out. <laughs> and then I see this little boy, eight, seven, eight, nine, probably six, seven, eight years old, walking up to the front in a little like house on the prairie, kind of white chapel. I see him walking to the front receiving Jesus. And I say, when you were eight years old, you ask Jesus in your heart in a little white chapel. He goes, yeah. And he starts wailing. And he falls down in the sand. And I walk over to him. And I'm, we're both in the sand. And I'm this close to him. And I'm yelling, you need Jesus. And he's yelling back, I know. I have no idea why we're yelling. None whatsoever. <laughs> I said, pray this prayer. He says, okay. So Jesus, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need you in my life. And before we finish the first line of the prayer, he jumps up. And he takes off running. And my first thought is, good. <laughs> and the Lord says, go after him. And I can, st you know how you have some things happen in your life you will remember forever as if you were there? I still remember. I can remember my thoughts, the whole thing, like it all slowed down. And I remember the strongest thought, I am not going after him. And I say, the Lord says, go after him. I say, no. And my body takes off after him. You know, people say, Jesus would never make you do something you don't want to do. That is not true. I'm running after him the whole time, and then I have this overwhelming anxiety, like, what am I going to do when I catch him? I keep thinking, what am I going to do when I catch him? And I catch him, and I jump on his back. <laughs> and we fall into the sand. <laughs> and I'm yelling, you need Jesus! This close to him. I know! Pray this prayer. He prays another piece of the prayer. He gets up. He takes off running. The Lord's all, go after him. I say, no, I after him. I tackle him three times in the sand, yelling every time, you need Jesus, I know. The last time I tackle him on the water's edge, he prays a couple lines of the prayer. He gets up, he takes off running. I get up and the whole motorcycle gang is right there. I say, absolutely not. <laughs> he runs out, I don't know, maybe a hundred yards. He stops, he turns. 
And he goes, you, you. I said, yeah. He said, you pray for me. I said, what's your name? He lifts up his shirt. He has a big belt buckle that says Philip. He said, my name is Philip. I said, okay. Now, you know, as soon as that ended, the anointing lifted. How many of you have ever had an experience? It's like the anointing lifts, and you go from Superman to Pee Wee Herman. And I look around. I'm completely unaware. Like a second before, I did not realize that the muscle beach had stopped. You know, they thought it was going to be a fight. So the stop, and there's literally hundreds of people in a circle around us. And they're all like, and our, our, our students, I mean our students, our, our youth group's there. And when, as soon as I get done, I turn and literally I'm like, I'm shaking, and I can hardly walk. And they're all run down and they're like, we were going to get those guys on the, we were going to take those motorcycle guys out for you. <laughs> oh yeah, sure you are. <laughs> Listen, there's a you you don't know till you take your gift and put it in the fire. You might, like, I'm a lamb, I'm a lamb, I'm a lamb. Well, I want to tell you something. You can't be a lamb without a lion because the person that's in you is the lamb and the lion. If you have never discovered the, the lion, it's because you haven't put your gift in the fire. I'm reminded of Noah. I'm Noah. Jonah. Noah, too. Noah is awesome. Noah took his gift and took it out of the fire. Jonah, you know, Jonah. <laughs> You don't want to mess up when you're streaming, man. It's Jonah. You know, Jonah, is, uh, God says, go to Nineveh. And he's like, I'm not going to Nineveh, man. You know, I'm going to go to Nineveh. I'm going to give him this word. You're going to relent. I'm not going. And then he ends up in a boat to go into Taurus. And, and there's, a, there's a big storm. It says that God, God created a storm. And Jonah at at, is asleep in the bottom of the boat. How many know Jesus was asleep in a storm and Jonah was asleep in the storm, but for two completely different reasons? <laughs> Jesus is asleep in peace and Jonah's asleep in depression. And all of a sudden, the people, the men get together on the, the sailors and they're like, okay, why is this storm happening? It must be someone's fault. Okay, let's draw straws and see whose fault it is. And they get straws from all the men, including Jonah. They wake him up and Jonah's straw is the shortest. <laughs> This is such a crazy story. And they go, okay, tell us what you've done wrong. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm running from my God. And he said, the only way to stop the storm is to throw me over. And they're like, no, no, we're not going to throw you over. We're going we're to rescue you. And they try to rescue him, and you know the story. They couldn't rescue him, so they finally throw him over in a whale. <laughs> Swallows him. It's <laughs> a great story. <laughs> Can you imagine whaling? You, you open up the stomach, and there's your friend, you know? A whale swallows him up and finally spits him out in the middle. But I, I, I'm only trying to say, it's like, you might think you're going to the valley of shadow of death, but you might be in the valley of the whale. <laughs> like, I'm in a storm. I'm rebuking the devil. And maybe you caused the storm. Like, is it possible that our disobedience... <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. You're like, well, that's Old Testament. Is obedience only important in the Old Covenant? I don't know why I'm fully alive. 
I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. That's not the valley of the shadow of death. That's the valley of the whale. And you're there because God's called you to Nineveh, not there. When God spits you up, you're like, Lord, I give you my life. I give you my soul. Okay, anyway. It's dark in here. I'm like Jesus. No, you're not like Jesus. You're like Jonah. And all I'm trying to say is, is that you're wondering why you're fully alive? Where did God call you? Well, a place I don't want to go. Trust me, you want to go where God called you. I love the story of Esther. Now, I have just a couple of minutes to cover this story, but hum, ladies, you love the story of Esther? Come on, ladies, help me. I love the story of Esther, and uh, I love the story of, of Mordecai in the book of Esther. Uh, Esther has a kind of a crazy uncle, Mordecai. And anyway, you know the story. She becomes queen. And Mordecai is like, he is fully alive. This guy lives fully alive. And it's, Haman is the right-hand man to Mordecai. I'm sorry, right-hand man to the king. And he requires everyone to bow down as they leave the palace. And Mordecai's like, I'm not bowing down. I only bow to God. And that creates a lot of tension between him and Haman. And pretty soon, Haman realizes that he's a Jew and they say, well, he won't bow. The people say, well, Mordecai won't bow down because the Jews all serve God and they won't bow to an image and you're an image and they won't bow to him. And it just grows and the story grows and grows and grows to the fact that Haman gets so infuriated with Mordecai that he just has these, these visions of just killing him. And he finally sets up some gallows to kill Haman, which is just the craziest story. And a few months earlier, Mordecai has saved the king's life and Mordecai doesn't really know um, doesn't really know the king, but he like there was an assassination plot, and Mordecai reveals it to the king, and all this stuff happens, and and then one night the king can't sleep, and he's kind of walking around the palace, and he's thinking like, wow, you know that guy saved my life, and I didn't do anything for him, and so he calls Haman in, and he's like, Haman, like what should the king do for somebody that's like really amazing, and you know, he's the reason why he's alive. And he tells him all these things, you know. And Haman, of course, thinks it's him because he's so arrogant. And he's like, well, he should put him on a king's donkey and put a robe on him and, and ride him through town and say, you know, hail, whatever the guy's name is, you know. And, and the king goes, go do that for, for Mordecai. <laughs> it's just the craziest story. So Haman is like so humiliated, you know. He puts Mordecai in the donkey. He puts his royal robes on him, and Haman has to walk down the street going, Hail Mordecai, you know. Just <laughs> totally ticks him off, you know. It's just getting worse and worse. And finally he creates this way of, you know, he, he convinces the king that they should, he should kill all the Jews. Of course, the king doesn't know that Mordecai is a Jew and that Esther is a Jew, so it's just this trick. Mordecai has him sign this decree that all the Jews will be killed at a certain date. And so this, you know, this story is building, and this decree goes out to all the provinces that on this date that the that the that the uh, you know all the Gentiles can just kill all the Jews. Not only can they, they should kill all the Jews. And so there's weeping in the land, and of course. Esther, back to the palace, Esther is totally insulated from all this because she's living in the palace. She's royalty. She's sipping suds with the king. She's living in total comfort. And she's like, you know, it's all good. One day, Uncle Mordecai ends up in the courts 
of the palace, which you're not supposed to be there. And on top of that, he's, t- he's ripped all his clothes off. Aren't you glad you live in the New Testament? <laughs> Every time the Lord came on people, they ripped their clothes off. I'm like, thank God for New Testament prophetic ministry. <laughs> he's ripped his clothes off. He puts sacks on. He gets ashes. He throws them on his head. And he's protesting outside of the palace. Uncle Mordecai is protesting outside of the palace. And Esther looks out the window and she sees her crazy uncle. <laughs> She's like, what the heck is he doing? And so she sends her her servant out there with some clothes, and she goes, tell Mordecai to put this on and calm down. And the guy gets, the servant gets to Mordecai, the messenger says, hey, you know, the queen says you gotta like put these clothes on if you wanna come into the palace courtyard and you gotta calm down, you know, you're, 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 you're scaring everybody. And then he says these words. When Mordecai learned, oh, I'm sorry. Then Mordecai said to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all these Jews. For if you remain silent, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's household will perish. For who knows whether you've attained royalty like, for, this, for a time like this. Three points I'd like to make. Life A life of abundance is always for the purpose of molding culture, not cultivating comfort. Number two, it's incumbent upon us to both enjoy the privilege of the palace and carry out the responsibility of royalty. And finally, the devil stalks greatness. Would you stand? I want to say this to you this morning, that you were called for greatness. Did you hear me? I love what Mordecai said. He said to Esther, listen, listen, girl, listen. If you don't do what you're called to do, God will raise somebody else up and they will accomplish what God wants done. But you and your household, you all die. And then he says these most famous words, right? In the book of Esther. What if you attained royalty for this very reason? Girl, what if you're here for this day? And by the way, we got to give Esther credit now because Esther says, tell everyone to fast and I'll go to see the king. I love these words. If I die... I die. You don't really live till you pass over the chicken line. I want to pray for you. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in these people. I bless what you're doing in these people. I'm reminded of the words of Joshua and Caleb when they came back from the promised land and 10 spies said, we can't take it. It's a good land, but there's too many giants in it. And I love what Joshua said. He stood up in the midst of a weeping people who were all on their face. And he said, he said, those giants shall be our daily bread. That's what he said. He said, they shall, they shall be our prey. They shall be our daily bread. How many understand that there are giants in your promised land? And they shall be your daily bread. I want you to say this. My enemies, my enemies who, are not human, who are not human, shall be to me, be to me my, daily bread. my daily bread. In Jesus' name. In Jesus name. Amen. 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 God bless you. Before you sit down, I want to say this. You might be here and you don't know Jesus or you've walked away from Jesus. It's probably obvious, but let me say this. You can't come in to your destiny if you're not born again. And you're like, well, I I received Jesus. But if you're running from Jesus, if you're running from your call, you're like Jonah. And I want to say to you, and you're going to come in just a minute. I want to say that we want to give you an opportunity to ask Jesus into your life. And to be, if you will, spit up in the land of your promises. Out of the belly of the whale, 
in the midst of your belly of purpose. I hope you enjoyed that message. You know this podcast exists to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience all of God's goodness in every area of your life. I want you to know God's abundance from the inside out. So just a quick reminder that one of the best ways to do this is by reading my newest book, Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. It's just released and now available for purchase wherever you buy your books. Check it out if you're tired of living with the never-enough mindset and want to move into experiencing the wealth of heaven regardless of your circumstances. Don't forget to let me know what you think. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a blessed day.